All right, chapter 13. <coughs> chapter 13, verse 11. We took a look at this on Sunday, and, and I read the scripture, and there's definitely an application for us from a preaching sense, an encouragement sense, and it says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, and the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So when we talk about this time that Paul is, is saying, listen, you know what time it is. Just by looking at the world around you, by understanding the context of the life that we live and understanding that there are these uh, these uh, properties or these attributes that are of the flesh. They're of the darkness, right? All these sinful things that he lists that we're supposed to put away and cast them off. Paul is talking about time in the sense of, and here's the word, imminence. That's the word that Paul is, is sort of indicating with this, like, you know the time, right? He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come. There's this idea of anticipation that Paul is talking about. And again, the word is imminence. And what he's talking about is salvation from an eternal perspective. When we're saved, when we believe upon Jesus for salvation, there's an instantaneous, what we call positional righteousness given to us, positional salvation that is attributed to us because of Jesus. We're saved. And yet throughout walking in our life with the Lord, we still battle sin. We're still in the flesh. Paul teaches in other areas. You know, we talked about this, oh, woe, or, or, you know, woe is me, oh, sinful man that I am who's going to save me from this body of flesh. I'm still in the flesh. Although my spirit has been renewed, the Holy Spirit resides in me, all those kinds of things, I still have to battle the temptations to sin. And, and But what he's saying here is the reason why we want to cast those things off even in our behavior is because we have this expectation, this imminent uh, anticipation of the return of Jesus. When he talks about the hour has come, he's talking about this anticipation of Jesus coming back. And so this idea of knowing the time, the hour has come to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. When we first believed, we're saved in the moment. We're saved. We get it. We have the hope of heaven. The Holy Spirit seals us and gives us that promise but Paul's saying, now, as I'm writing this letter to you, even though you may have believed previously, understand that our salvation is even nearer now. And it's sort of like, when you stop and think about it, a no-duh state statement. Every breath we take is one that we could go, Jesus could come back now or now. And, and you could just keep doing that throughout your whole day. I don't advise it. You got to get stuff done. But like, that's the sort of anticipation that he's talking about. So it's living with this full, and here's the word that I want to attach to it the full resonant expectation that Jesus could return at any moment. The reason I, word the, I use the word resonant, it comes from a, from a musical reference for me, uh, someone who plays like a guitar. Like when you, when you hit the guitar strings, and, and if you've ever played guitar or stood near it, the sound waves that come out of the sound hole of the guitar, they make the wood vibrate, right? It consumes the entirety of the instrument, right? Or speakers, like when you're listening to music, speakers. There's a resonance that just fills up the space. Our expectation of the imminent return of Jesus for, for us, his people, 
should be resonant in our life. It should like just sort of consume all the different aspects of our life. That, that's the idea of this. And while this isn't, we're not here in terms of uh, discussing specifically or debating uh, eschatological timetables and like sort of how the end of time is going to happen. What Paul is bringing the attention of the church to is this, regardless of whether it's by way of what some believe is in the scripture called the rapture, right? Where Christ comes in the sky and takes his, his church out of the earth before the time of the great tribulation, or if it's just a reference to the time that Jesus actually comes back and sets his foot on the earth and, and, and finally kills off sin, puts, puts sin to death uh, eternally and establishes his kingdom here on a renewed earth, the scripture is really clear that we as God's people are called to be ready. That's the whole idea. We're called to live in a manner worthy of the name of Christ because he's coming back. He's coming back really soon. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, mark that down. I want to read that to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 has this uh, description of what's called the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take possession again fully of his creation. And Paul would say this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. So Paul's already saying, you guys already think about this. You guys already have an understanding, whether it's because I've taught you before and I've, I've written letters to you before describing the times and the seasons. He says, you guys already know these things. He says, for you yourselves, in verse 2, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or we are asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing." And so in this section, again, Paul uses similar language as you would expect as he's writing letters to different churches where he's saying, hey, cast off the works of darkness. Get rid of that, that element in your life and put on the armor of light. Now, if Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago and was encouraging the church then to be prepared and to live with expectation, how much more now should we live with this expectation that Jesus is coming soon, that, that like a thief in the night, when you don't expect it, Jesus is going to come back. Now, that reference to not expecting it, a thief in the night, that's for someone who hasn't given themselves over to Jesus, right? We who are, have given ourselves to Jesus, believed upon him, we have that expectation. We're looking up all the time. We're expecting Jesus to come at any point. For someone who hasn't believed upon Jesus, yeah, it's going to come like a thief in the night. They're going to think everything's peaceful and secure. Their life might be great in that sense. And then all of a sudden, 
Jesus is going to come back. And they're, they're going to stand in judgment, like we talked about on Sunday, before the Lord. And they're not going to have what the Bible calls an advocate for them. Like I described on Sunday, listen, we don't actually even have to answer the Lord when we're judged by him. Jesus steps in and he tells us that if you confess my name on earth, I'll confess your name before the Father, right? If people haven't believed upon Jesus and Jesus comes back and they have to stand before the Lord without that advocacy of Jesus Christ on their behalf, they're done for. They're done for. And, and so if Paul's writing this 2,000 years ago to the church, <clears throat> how much more do we need to call ourselves to obedience and holiness, to cut off the works of darkness from our life. Now, in verse 14, Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What does it mean to make no provision for the flesh? I think we can understand in a real sense that there's always this push-pull relationship. That while our spirits have been renewed, while we are new creations in Christ, we have this desire that God has given us for holiness in Jesus. Like Paul says, we're still battling the flesh. There's always this push-pull relationship. To understand the flesh and what that push-pull relationship looks like, there's multiple references in Scripture to it. So just mark these down as, as I call them out to you. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Galatians 5.16, Paul would say this. But I say, Paul, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Why should we want the Holy Spirit? I Remember, in the church, I'll say the Western church culture, man, we have some pretty uh, uh, defined lines between believers in Jesus Christ, where some draw a line and go, okay, I get the Holy Spirit. He's the one that is in us. He's God in us, and that happens when we're saved. But beyond that... I don't, want to, I don't want to have anything to do with it because the whole Holy Ghost thing or the Holy Spirit thing or the Spirit doing things in me, I'm not sure if I'm real comfortable with that. And yet there's other people who are also Christians who go, Holy Spirit, great, let's do that to the fullest. Let's just read the Bible, what? No, let's just do the Spirit thing, right? There's always a balance in the Christian life that we have to understand. But here's the importance of it that Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit, meaning if you're led by the Holy Spirit, if on a day-by-day -day basis, you just go, Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm a mess by myself. The decisions I make, bad. So, Holy Spirit, as I'm walking through my day, if you'll just continue convicting me and drawing me and pulling me in the right direction, man, I'll learn to listen to your voice and continue submitting to it. And Paul says, if you do that, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And it goes on and says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Again, Paul echoing his own words that he wrote written in Romans where he says, man, I don't do the things I want to do. There are desires in my heart following Jesus that I know I want to do those things, but I can't seem to find myself doing them. And the things that I don't want to do that I know are sinful, I just always seem to end up doing those things. And he goes, who's going to save me from this body of death? But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's the one who saves us from that sin. Jesus himself would say this in John chapter 6, verse 63. John 6, 63. 
Jesus would say, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He says, the words I've spoken to you are both spirit and life. John 6, 63. And so there's this clear indication that we're supposed to be walking in the spirit, filled with the spirit, governed by the spirit, moved by the spirit, all of these things for the purpose of putting away these works of darkness in our life, which if we were to go around and take a, a, a poll to ask everybody, hey, what's the works of darkness in your life? If we were really honest and we wanted to be those kinds of people, we could sit here and go, here's all the dark things in my life. The things that I don't show you, the things that you would never guess about me, the things you don't know that I've never actually confessed to another person. Here's all the works of darkness in my life. That's a pretty scary proposition. You know, we're told in the book of James to confess our sins one to another. You ever been in a Bible study or, or a service even where they're just like, hey, this is good for us to do as a church. And you go around and you think, what can I confess that's kind of true, but not all the way true because I don't actually want anybody. My dad used to say there's three kinds of truth. There's the truth. There's the whole truth, and then there's nothing but the truth. And, and he would make these distinctions between those things. We like to tell people the truth. Yeah, I'm just a sinner. Boy, I'm just struggling with my thoughts. Or, you know, oh, yeah, I really I had a mean thought towards someone. When in reality, if we did that, dug that down a little bit deeper, it's probably a lot darker than that and probably a lot worse than that. And yet God calls us to say, hey, confess your sins one to another. Be open and honest about those things because when you expose something to the light, the dark has no power at that point. When you confess something, it, it hurts because it was sin. It's dark. It's not fun. It, it's, it's tragic. It's brokenness. And yet that's the place where the light of Jesus can be shown into it to expose the darkness and cut it off from us is through confession. So if you don't have someone in your life that you can confess to and really come to that place of honesty with, I would just highly recommend praying that the Lord would lead you into that relationship and go, Lord, who can I just trust that when I confess the worst things that I've done and I'm really honest about my sins, they're not going to sit there and judge me, but rather they're just going to pray with me and go, well, let's take that to the Lord. Once it's confessed, it's out, it's gone. And now let's just work on holiness. Let's cast off those works of darkness and let's work on pursuing the Lord in holiness. Now, when Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh. This is important. When he talks about provision, what he's talking about is foresight. Okay? No provision for the flesh. He's talking about foresight. He's talking about premeditation. Like when you watch a crime, crime show on TV or a crime movie and they say someone's been charged with premeditated murder. They killed someone and it wasn't a crime of passion where in the moment they snapped and killed someone. It was premeditated. They thought it out ahead of time. They planned it. They figured the escape route. They figured how they were going to hide the body. Sorry, I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just saying it, this is the same idea about this idea of provision for the flesh. It's foresight. It's premeditation. It's thinking about an opportunity for something to take place. It's seeing the desire of our flesh in advance of the situation in which we're actually going to be tempted to sin and then making the decision ahead of time to not sin. He's saying make no provision for the flesh. When you see ahead of time that there's an opportunity for you to sin, here's the idea. It's like know your triggers, right? 
What are the triggers for you that you go, man, when this happens, I always end up angry. When this happens, I always end up in a conflict. When such and such takes place or when so-and-so says this or when I'm hanging out with that person, I always end up in this sinful behavior or sinful thought process. That's the idea of making no provision. It's seeing those things ahead of time and saying, nope, I'm not going there. I'm just not going to go there and allow myself to even be in the situation that would tempt me to sin. And so he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Fleshly desires. That's where sin comes from. James 1.15 says that desire is conceived in the mind. And then when that desire is fully growth, it gives birth to sin in the body. Where do the ideas for sinful things come from? Our minds. Fleshly desires. And fleshly desires are easily identified. They are simply the things that are self-indulgent. Fleshly desires, the sins of the flesh, are just the ones where we go, what am I going to feel good about? What's going to make me feel good in this moment rather than what is right? And so activities, thoughts, emotions that displace us from giving affection and honor to God, something that takes us away from worshiping God and puts us in the place of worship. I'm going to give honor to myself. I'm just going to please myself. That's the idea of fleshly desires. And they're easy to identify. The truth is, is that when we, when we stop and consider what are the fleshly desires that I have, we may think, well, I'm, I'm pretty humble, Lord, like don't strike me dead, but I'm, I'm pretty humble. I'm trying to not think about worldly things. I'm trying to be, you know, righteous in the things that I'm doing, copying Jesus. There are still fleshly desires and they're easy to identify. Number one, where is my time spent? How do I spend my time? Stop and look at what you spend the majority of your time doing. Now, I'll say the caveat to that is outside of the requirements of our life, work, school, those kinds of things. With the time that you have available to you that is just yours to choose what to do with, that's not imposed upon you because of some relationship or responsibility, what do you spend your time doing? Number two, where is your money spent? Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. Where do you invest all of your time? Where do you invest your finances? Where is that? And you can show where your heart actually is, what you're consumed with. And then finally, thirdly, where's my time spent? Where's my money spent? What are my thoughts consumed by? Beyond just the physical activity of life, what I invest in financially or with, or with my material possessions, down to that real simple heart level, mind level, what are my thoughts consumed by? Am I constantly considering as I walk through my day, Lord, how can I honor you in this situation? In our, my relationships, how do I reflect Jesus to this person right now? How do, I, how do I do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians? Take my thoughts captive for Christ. What are my thoughts consumed by? And this is what Paul's talking about when he says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, chapter 14, we jump into verse 1, and Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but 
not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats anything despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Let's stop right there. Paul begins discussing in this section, again, the big picture. Paul is teaching the church how we're supposed to live with one another in the church. How do we function as the body of Christ? And how do we witness or reflect Jesus out to the world around us, right? And we've talked about it multiple times where Jesus told his disciples, the world is going to know that you're my disciples by the way that you love each other. That's how the world is going to know, hey, they're serious about following Jesus. It's how you love one another. Now, you guys have heard the phrase or seen the tattoo, or maybe you have this tattoo, I don't know, where it says, only God can judge me, right? Every hard criminal in the, in the in state penitentiary, hey, only God can judge me, right? Like, that's the tough guy approach to life a lot of times where people want to try and justify their actions. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but only God can judge me. You can't tell me what's right or wrong. Now, we can sort of laugh at that comment and go, well, okay, but you should also understand that there are responsibilities that we have as Christians, right? I can't judge you, but you will answer to God for your behavior and activities. But it's one of the things that, again, as Christians, as a self-critique for ourselves, to be aware of how we're relating to each other and how we're witnessing to the world, we have to be cautious because Christians are really good at taking scripture out of context and adding what's called a subtext or their own meaning to a scripture when that wasn't the purpose of the scripture. And the concept of judgment is one in which we take a scripture like Romans chapter 14 here, the first four chapters or so, where God very clearly speaks to the Apostle Paul and says, don't judge each other. That's what he's saying. Don't, who are you to judge another? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And what often happens is that when we, we then say, well... Yeah, we hear what, what God is saying through the Apostle Paul. We're not supposed to judge each other, but um, we are supposed to use discernment and wisdom. And that's true. Absolutely right. We are called on, on multiple things within Scripture to use discernment, to use godly wisdom in regard to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the instructions Jesus has given us, the commandments he's given us. Okay, But in regard to judgment, the reality is that a lot of us, when we, when we come to faith in Christ and sort of become solid in what we believe, right? We, we sort of know our faith and our salvation. Oftentimes what happens is because we're so sure of our salvation, we're, we're solid in our salvation, when we see someone who looks or acts differently than we do in our salvation, we just simply like to judge them. That's the bottom line. We like to judge people because we like to be right and we want other people to be wrong. That's just a part of the flesh. And even if you have the nicest, gentlest, softest, most uh, amenable personality in the world, the reality is, is that at the core, everyone wants to be approved. We want to feel right about things. And so here's the context of what Paul's talking about so that we don't get off in this idea and just think of, hey, 
you can't judge me, right? Or we shouldn't be judging each other. We, un we need to understand the context of what Paul is talking about and teaching here. And so I want you to take note of uh, what's going on here and what's being contrasted, how Paul is talking about two different kinds of people. I used to read this in regard to Paul talking about the weak one in faith, and I would immediately jump ahead and think Paul is comparing someone who is weak in the faith and someone who is strong in the faith. But that's not what Paul's doing. He never makes the distinction of the other person in the faith being strong. All he says is, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. To try and draw the distinction and, and say Paul's talking about a weak person in, in faith and a strong person of faith, that's just not right. Paul never says that. He just says, as for you, those who are in the church is what he means. When someone who is weak in the faith that wants to come to you and be a part of what you're doing, just welcome them. They're supposed to be a part of you. You need to bring them in. Now, the fact that Paul is not making the contrast between a weak person and a strong person. He's just saying, you who are in the church, those of you who are in the church, the person who's weak in faith, and we'll talk more about that, what that means, but the person who's weak in faith, don't judge them for that weakness. Simply welcome them in, right? That's what he's saying. But what that tells us, that he's not making the distinction between weak and strong, is that not everyone in the body of Christ is going to look the same. For Paul to have to say this, hey, welcome in the weak one, does say that people are going to look different in the body of Christ. There are differences in the degrees or depth, if you will, of the faith that various members of the church, all in unity, express or exhibit or practice. Different, different. I hate the word levels of faith because it indicates this hierarchy. It's not hierarchy. It's just where people are at in their growth. That's the first thing is that, man, not everybody in the church is going to look the same. There's going to be different sins that are represented in the church. Some are going to be really visible when someone is perhaps young or new to the faith. And then there's going to be the rest of us who've been around church for a long time and, and, and like we talked about earlier, have sort of learned how to mask or hide the true depth of the darkness in our hearts. And we put on a good act for everybody. But the second thing to understand from this is that we are not to, if we are a part of the church, we are not to shun, to push away, or to distance ourselves from anyone else that desires to come into the church as a part of the body of Christ. We're not supposed to create degrees of acceptance when it comes to unity in the body of Christ. We're either in or we're not. Yep, there's different levels of growth. There's different expressions of, of faith and different confessions of sin, but we're unified in Christ. The third thing to understand about this, Paul not drawing the distinction between weak and strong, just weak and acceptance in the church, is that faith is a dynamic, growing thing. It's something that develops and grows over time. It goes through seasons just like anything else. Now, when Paul talks about the one who is weak in faith, the idea is to be lacking in moral strength or courage or any other uh, cognitive feature, any thought process. Someone who has believed upon Jesus is unified him with his death in his death and his resurrection, but in the walking with Jesus, the being filled with the Holy Spirit, what that looks like, 
It's someone who just lacks sort of the moral strength. They're struggling with perhaps just fleshly sin still, or perhaps courage to take a stand and say, I'm with Jesus. I'm a Jesus follower. Or perhaps their thought process, they're just struggling with going, I believe in Jesus. I get the salvation piece, but I don't understand what that looks like on a daily basis for me when I'm on the job site or when I'm in a relationship with someone. I just, I'm struggling with that. All of those things can be an indication of weakness in the faith. Now, understand that when we talk about weakness, remember, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just is. We all have points in our life. We have all we all have parts of our faith that is weak. But remember what, what Jesus himself would say, right? Or Paul would say this about our faith, rather. Pardon me. That in our weakness, Paul was giving his own testimony, that in our weakness, the places where we're weak, he would seem to approve of that so that Jesus can be strong in that situation. That's what Paul would say. And he was talking about the thorn in his flesh, the one that he prayed for God to remove and, and say, Lord, just take this thing away from me. He prayed three times for that. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, I'm strong. That's the idea. So, so whereas we might look at that on first blush and go weak in the faith, ooh, whoa, whew, gotta watch out for those who are weak in the faith. Listen, those who are weak in the faith, oftentimes that's where Jesus is working the most. That's where we see people just on fire and inspired and excited about being a part of God's family. It's because they're so close to and they're so butted up against their sin still. They're going, oh no, I'm being saved moment by moment. And what is this idea that Jesus might come back in the very next moment? Yeah, I want to live like that, right? So people who, and I'm not saying, hey, listen, everybody go get close to your sin. That's not what I'm saying and saying, hey, go be a sinner so that you could be excited about Jesus. No, that's not the point. But what we see is that in the weak parts of faith, we see Jesus working actively. And so it's incredibly important that we not look down on that person. We not look down on the weaknesses in our own life, but rather expose those things, welcome those things into the body of Christ. What that means on a really practical level, and I've mentioned it before, is that the church, the way that we understand it, and sort of the production value that we've put on what a church service should look like doesn't seem to always match up with the, script, with the description of the church in the Bible. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing things well. We're called to do things well. But mark what I say, the production value. Everything needs to be perfect. Everything needs to be lined up. And that person's going to talk, and then this time we're going to do this, and then the lights need to do this. Again, I'm not criticizing or, or mocking people that do that. But here's what I'm saying. That doesn't always seem to correlate with what we see in the scripture. If we're supposed to be welcoming in weak people, weak in the faith, and we're supposed to be encouraging them, and, and that's supposed to be a part of the life of the church, then here's the reality. The church, meaning the gathering of God's people, is going to be messy. It should be messy. In fact, I sort of have this expectation and hope at this season of my life that on a Sunday... It's not just, hey, how smoothly did the sermon go? Or did the worship song sound good? And was the mix good? And did everything look all right? All those things are awesome. I'm thankful for people who undertake those things. But my hope and prayer and expectation is that we might have to explain to our kids when we leave church service why that person looked that way or smelled that way or was talking that way. 
Like that's, the church is supposed to be messy because we're supposed to be ministering to people who have needs, people who are struggling with sin, people who are weak in the faith, trying to figure out just how to get their thoughts right, let alone their bodies and their lives, right? The church is supposed to be messy. And if we're looking to sanitize all of those things and go, no, 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 it's church time. Everyone needs to look and act a certain way. Then how do we welcome in someone who's weak? What happens is we start establishing the standard of to come to our church or be in our fellowship. You need to look a certain way. You need to make a certain amount of money. You need to talk a certain way. You need, you, I'm just saying, when you, when you take a survey of the church, these things happen. They're just a part of humanity. But those are part of the things that we have to constantly push away. And the moment we see the person who's dirty and smelly and still cussing and maybe is, is, is still breathing the, the, the sauce from last night or whatever you want to call it, listen, that's, that's where we put our arms around that person and welcome them in because we're ministering Jesus to them. It's hard. I'll just be honest. It's hard when someone appears to us unlovely, and yet that's who we're called to love those who are unlovely. Jesus was touching people who had skin diseases. As we've read through the Old Testament, right? In our read scripture, uh, as we're reading through the Old Testament, how many times was there the repetition of what the cleansing process was if you were, came into contact with some sort of skin disease, right? And, and there's just gross words that, that are attributed to that, but that's the whole idea. Jesus was flying in the face of what the religious expectation was in terms of physical cleanliness, and he was far more concerned with the spiritual health of the person. Now, he could heal the, the physical need as well, but he was worried and concerned about the spiritual health of the person. So should we as the church worry about the spiritual health of the person. Now, what's the reference to vegetables here? Paul says one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, this is where Paul says, hey, welcome in the one who's weak in the faith but not to quarrel over opinions. Underline that word, opinions. Take note of that word. Here's what it means. It's okay to have an opinion in the church. It's okay to, to have studied something and read something in the scripture and tried to figure it out and go, I think this is what this means. And someone else having studied and thought about the same scripture go, nah, I think it means this. It's okay to have opinions in the church. It's not okay to argue over them and go, we're right and you're wrong. No, we're right and you're wrong. Well, we're going to take our ball and go home and we're going to take our people who agree with us and go start another church. That's not okay. Paul says don't argue over those things. And then he uses this example of one who eats anything versus the weak person, the person who's weak in faith, only eating vegetables. Now, some of us may say, amen. Of course, if you only eat vegetables, you're going to be weak. You need some protein in your diet, right? Amen to that. You need a good steak once in a while. But here's the context of what he's talking about. Perhaps you've heard this explained before. Paul would teach in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, about meat sacrificed to idols. This is, the, the again, the culture that they're living in. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all, that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, he says, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, 
as to the eating of food offered to idols. This is the reference that he's making back in Romans chapter 14. Paul is making a distinction between someone who in their Christian faith has what we call liberty, where they say, I can eat anything I want, as opposed to someone who is perhaps weak in the faith, we might attribute that to being young in the faith, who says they're only going to eat vegetables. Here's why a young Christian, a new Christian, would only eat vegetables in that culture. Because for many of those young Christians, they were converts and formerly had lived a life uh, in pagan worship. And in pagan worship, oftentimes the worship was expressed in the same type of sacrificial or similar types of sacrificial system that was practiced by the Jews, the sacrificing of animals to their various pagan gods. And so for a young convert to Christianity, that practice of eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, perhaps even the very idol that they had worshipped before they became a Christian, could be incredibly disorienting for them. Stop and think. <clears throat> if you were saved today as a Christian, and before you were a Christian, the only thing you ever did on Sunday mornings was watch football. That was your, that was your religion, if you will, right? You watched football. And then you meet Jesus, you confess your sins, you repent, you become a Christian. And then the first Sunday you go to church where you're expecting there to be this new life, this new thing, they put on the football game on the screen up front and said, instead of church today, we're just going to watch a football game. That would disorient you. Some would go, amen, that's awesome, let's do that. But others would go, wait a minute, I thought the Christian life was supposed to be this pursuing of Jesus and what happened to the worship and all these things before I met Jesus I just watched football anyway that so what's the difference see here's what would happen with the with the early Christians as they grew in their faith and their understanding of who Jesus was they would come to realize that meat whether it had been sacrificed to an idol to worship that idol or not was just meat it didn't matter where it came from or what purpose it had been slaughtered for, it's just meat. And if we receive that with thanksgiving in our heart to the Lord for him providing food for us, then we're just worshiping God by taking that meat. But for the one who is young, weak, new to the faith perhaps, for them to see that meat that was sacrificed to an idol and go, wait a minute, I used to sacrifice and eat that meat and when I was doing it, I was worshiping one of the Baals or the Ashtaroths one of the other pagan gods or goddesses that were alive in that culture, the worship was alive in that culture. And they go, I can't do that as a Christian. I, I can't, with good conscience, eat that meat because it was sacrificed to that God. So this is what Paul is talking about. This is what he's, this is what he's talking about, is making sure that we're not disorienting the young believer, the one who's young in faith, And so he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Oh, those, those young Christians, so zealous for, for religious things. Oh, they don't drink, they don't gamble, they don't dance anymore, they don't watch rated R movies. Don't they understand we have liberty in Christ? All things are lawful. Remember the second part of that verse. But not all things are profitable or expedient or healthy. 
And so Paul says, let not the one who eats, who takes liberty in the things of God, despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. See, oftentimes, here's what happens. This idea of weak. Oftentimes, we think of someone who is, and I'll just say, um, I'll use the word religious, um, and what I mean by that is someone who is, is um, strict with their devotion to the Lord. And again, they see those things of the flesh, the things perhaps that they were a part of before they met Christ, the things that they practiced in their life, and they say, I'm not going to do those things. And we see them sort of in, in, uh, place discipline in their life over those moral things, I'll say. A lot of times we look at that and go, boy, that person's really strong in their faith. Look at them. They're resisting the temptation to drink or smoke or, or whatever the case might be. Watch rated R movies, all the common ones that, that we, we typically think in terms of church and how people judge other people. And we think of them as strong because they're sort of taking a moral stance. And yet what it would seem is that Paul is saying the one who abstains from things is actually weak. Now that's a hard thing for some of us to hear because a lot of us have lived our entire life going, no, the strength of my faith is that I'm not going to give in to sinful things, which is true, which is true as well. But there are those who don't do things, don't, don't follow the actual conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's, that's a whole other subject to jump into. But when we talk about conviction, I'm convicted, I have the conviction not to do such and such a thing. Listen, Conviction is great as long as it actually is the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between conviction and a choice. The conviction of the Holy Spirit will always match up with something that the Scripture has given us. A choice that I might make in my faith is just that, a choice. That's all it is. And someone else, as long as they are listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and are being obedient to what Scripture says could make a different choice and still be under God's grace and in the fellowship of the church. And Paul says, he says, don't despise the one who abstains from things, the ones who are weak, and don't pass judgment on the one who partakes of stuff. God has welcomed him. And then he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So in our faith, again, we answer for ourselves. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and Christ will be our advocate. The Lord can help us to stand in the day of judgment, so that even the things that we might convict each other of and judge each other uh, on, the Lord can help us stand even in the face of that. And so, so Paul really draws that separation to go, listen, here's the whole idea. Nobody should be judging anybody else on what they're doing as long as they are within what God has given us in our salvation and the confines of what he has spoken to us in his word. Well, we're at verse 5, but I'm going to take a break there. And we'll continue, we'll continue on next week. But I'll, I'll end with this, just because this is important. This sort of, sort of caps off the thought in terms of being responsible for ourselves and not judging another person for the choices that they might make in their faith. Verse 5 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. <clears throat> Each one, mark this, should be fully convinced 
in his own mind. There's a lot there. I'll say this as a, as a caveat to this. You cannot convince yourself that sin is okay. If God has said something is sinful and has made a prohibition against those things, it's not okay to justify that to ourselves. But within the faith, within the provision of what God has, got, God has given us in our salvation, these kinds of issues of, I'll call them morality or choice, we need to be convinced in ourselves. God, is it right for me to do this thing? Holy Spirit, will you call me to the conviction that matches up best with your word for where I'm at in my faith, where I'm at in my life? And remember what I said earlier, one of the things we understand about faith is that it is a dynamic, growing thing. When you're young in your faith, there are certain things that are going to be off limits or certain things that you're going to practice. And as you grow in your faith in different ways, those things will adjust and change and grow and ebb and flow. It's not that God changes at all. It's that our understanding and our willingness to submit to him and to grow in the ways that he wants to teach us, our understanding of his word, will expand as we move through 